Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So this is Series 4, Episode 3, and we're joined by Malika Sekar to talk about all things blood transfusion. So we discuss antibodies, matching, infectious complications, thresholds, and special requirements. This will be our last episode for a while due to the coronavirus outbreak. Hi Malika, thank you for coming to speak on our podcast today. We're focusing today on blood transfusion. So we know it's been around for three or four hundred years. It was in England, the first transfusion to dogs, if, that, if I'm not mistaken. It's been going on so long, yet I want to maybe talk about some myths or problems that did occur, um, which might make patients apprehensive and ask some questions really to the nurses about is it safe or not. Well, we, we, we've moved on from dogs. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, that's good. Yeah, and it started actually in the 30s, and so the blood groups got identified in the 30s. But blood transfusion existed even before that. But it was really around the mid-30s that it got systematically done. So donors were systematically invited and, you know, blood groups were tested and so on. So that was a long time from 1600 to 1930 to actually put into subtypes. and Yeah, and that's mainly because technology is different from knowledge. So people have always done practices without knowing the science behind it. And it's only later that the science gets unraveled. And then that makes the practice more sensible. So, you know, there's never been a a parallel stream of both. One has followed the other, usually. Mm -hmm. But the transfusion we do now is so different from the transfusions we used to do previously. And there are so many reasons why you mentioned the 70s. And the 70s was actually a golden age in many ways because it saw a transformation in how some groups of patients like sickle cell, blood cancers, hemophilia, you know, the heavily blood transfusion dependent patients, how they were treated. And that's not just because of improvements in transfusion science, but it's also about the fact that plastics were available in the late 60s. So you didn't need bottles, glass bottles, you could do plastics. Butterfly needles came in and systems got better then reagents got better. So with any of the transfusion-related practice, if you didn't have good quality reagents and good quality testing, then you were putting yourself into lots of problems. And we know that from some of the blood infections that that have happened with transfusions, because if you didn't know what infection you were looking for, you couldn't have a reagent for it. You know, it's like in an A to Z, you want to know what street you're looking for when you go to somebody's house. But if you're looking at a Google map and you just want to spot something out of the woods, you want to spot a tree, that's a very different system of looking at it. And so these days, we're now looking at technologies called pathogen inactivation. So you're not looking for hepatitis B and how to screen it in a unit, but you're blanket inactivating pathogens. And in this country, we evaluated it in the UK, but it wasn't so cost effective. But in some other countries where infections in donors are very prevalent, pathogen inactivation has been hugely important. And say, there's a super paper where a a study in um, Ghana did pathogen inactivation for red cells, and it took away the malaria risk by a huge percentage. So, you know, so lots of things have evolved with time. And so the transfusions now are much safer. In the UK, it's because we screen systematically for pathogens we are worried about. In many parts of the world, it's because products are treated with pathogen inactivation. 
are there any viruses that we are worried about still now? The sort of the standard trio are still the important ones, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV. And the risk of getting these is very, very small. The reason the risks are so small is because the screening strategies are very good. It's molecular biology-based strategies. So we're not waiting for the donor to develop antibodies to it. We're actually detecting the infected, the pathogen in the blood. But still there's a window period before which these become positive. And sometimes tests are indeterminate. They might miss things. So in any laboratory test, Although it looks very precise and you get accurate figures and all that, there's still an element of uncertainty that's intrinsic to scientific testing. And this uncertainty means that there is a, a window of missing things or malreporting things. So these are the infective risks, but more importantly is the changing risk. So recently there's been a problem with dengue fever. Okay. Some time ago there was a problem with West Nile virus. America refuses to accept UK donors because of bovine spongiform encephalopathies. So there are actual risks and there are perceived risks. And these vary because the epidemiology of a virus varies. You know, you know from your flu vaccine, the flu vaccine that's used this year is very different from the flu vaccine that was used last year. So think of that in terms of a blood donor pool. The infections that are going through a country change. And so the a centralized blood service, which we have, which is amazingly useful, monitors and determines how tests should happen for all of these. Can you give us a little bit of insight into what happens to a group in screen what, when it's delivered to the lab? So it's useful to think of it in three parts. The pre-analytical, which is about sample collection and delivery and all that. The analytical, which is the sort of scientific bits of the testing. And the post-analytical, which is what gets reported out. So the analytical, is interesting because you know it's actually determining what your blood group is and the testing methods for that are really very old and not too many things have changed but what has changed is that it's become automated and so machines do it and so it's robotic okay. in some cases where you can't get a reasonable reliable reproducible result from a machine people would do it manually. But otherwise, it gets done. And because machines do it, instead of the old-fashioned test tubes, we use sort of smart plates, plates which have stuff coated onto them. So you just drop a little spot of blood, and the machine then picks out a result. So what we normally test for are blood groups and the presence or absence of antibodies. So the blood groups are red cell antigens. and Antigens are like buttons on your shirt that surround the cell surface. Now, red cells, you know, they've got to do an important job because they've got to squeeze through capillaries, so they've got to be able to bend. There's so many red cells in the body that if they all had a nucleus, it would be a very big burden on the body. So evolutionarily, the nucleus has got chucked out by the time the red cell comes to the circulation. Do you mean from like an energy point of view? Correct, it? yeah, okay. it's an energy right. conservation thing. But it still has to do things to carry the oxygen, squeeze through the capillaries. And so for all of these reasons, the membrane of the red cell is quite complex. It's got a lot of fat and it's got a lot of protein. And that skeleton of the red cell membrane is really quite fundamentally important to its function. But that's the function of it. But the structure of it is that it has lots of antigen buttons. Some of them are like carbohydrates, some of them are protein. And the ABO blood group, which we all know about, has been there in evolution 
you know, for 20 million years, give or take a few million. <laughs> and, you know, so it's there everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's in germs. It's in um, uh, food material. And so why should it be so prevalent? Is it there to be a nuisance for nurses or to earn blood banks a salary? Uh, it's not known. So the function of, you know, what's the evolutionary advantage of having the ABO system is not known, but it's so public and it's so ubiquitous that it's probably fundamental. We know that some blood group types will have some diseases more commonly or be more predisposed to some types of infection. So there are clinical correlates, but on the whole, the ABO group is mainly relevant because it messes up transfusion. And so you want to know somebody who is going to be transfused as to what their ABO group is and then give them the right ABO group blood. In hospitals where they do solid organ transplants, ABO is also expressed in kidney epithelium and so on. So it's quite important to know from that angle as to who can accept what type of a solid organ. About, there are about 24 different blood group systems and not all of it is important. ABO is very important because we carry in our bodies an antibody that is intrinsic to the ABO system. Everywhere else, if you remember your biology, you're exposed to an antigen and then your body forms the antibody. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it, it's not an intrinsic antibody. Mm. Usually antibodies are formed after an exposure as a secondary event. But in the blood group system, the ABO antibodies are intrinsic. And people say that that's because when you're an infant or a neonate, you've been exposed to antigens through germs and food and so on. And that causes you to start forming an antibody. So by definition, a premature baby would not often have a uh, the correlated antibody. Oh, okay. So if I'm blood group A, I would have an anti-B in me. So because of the presence of these antigen and antibody, the ABO system is more important than many other systems. The next in importance is the RH system. Again, RH with rhesus. Rhesus because the original identifications were done on the rhesus macaque monkeys. We, we used to call it rhesus D, etc., but these days we just say RH. And that became important because the RHD group was relevant in how women might get sensitized to babies if the woman was D negative and the baby, because of the partner, was D positive. And so because of that agenda, D is important. In routine blood bank practice, we do the ABO blood group, we do the D blood group, and that's on the cells. And then we use the plasma in the blood to see is there an antibody or not. The job of this test to know whether there's an antibody or not is actually quite important. And for this, to understand this better, it's better to step back to when you were probably children, when we didn't have electronic issue. So say 20 years ago, we would cross-match everybody. If you needed blood for a patient, you would come and say, okay, I'll cross-match four units. That was the standard. Cross-match means basically you need blood and your blood group is, I don't know, say B positive you need three units of blood. So I pull out five units from the bank fridge and I cross-match it against your serum to see whether there's actually, it's compatible in the test tube. And out of those five, maybe two might react because you have some antibodies to something or wow. whatever. And then those three which match, I give it to you. And that would take about 45 minutes because cross-matching takes time. And it also meant selecting stuff from the fridge, etc. So there's a lot of manual time involved. So nowadays what we do is electronic issue. So if I do your blood group and your blood group, I'm happy and confident that it is your blood group and you are you, all of that. Mm -hmm. 
And then I do your antibody screen and I know, okay, you've got no antibodies, so that's neat. Then all I need to do is to electronically match it with some units that's available in the fridge and that can be issued against you. So that saves 45 minutes of manual time to issue the blood. And a further advance to that has been the sort of Coca-Cola type dispensing machines that we have here. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you don't even need the blood bank to do that. So as long as the blood bank authorizes the patient as being valid and safe, you can just pick up what you need. So if you ask me, what is the blood use in the hospital at the present time? I wouldn't be able to tell you because it's all being taken from the fridges and I would have to go back to raw data to know why you're using all that blood. So I have no handle on it as a blood transfusion person. So it's become very much more democratic and you know you, you decide what you want. But underpinning all that democratic decision-making at the patient end is the fact that you need a reliable blood group and you need to be antibody-free. Because if you have an antibody, then I need to manually cross-match for you. What causes the formation of antibodies? I know you mentioned antigens, but could you explain that a little bit more? So there are about 24 types of categories of blood group. So ABO is one, RH is the other, da 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 there's so many more. And when a person is exposed to foreign antigens, and when you're talking of blood group-related foreign antigens, it's usually pregnancy, but it's also if you've been transfused in the past, for example, or received a blood type product in the past, which has exposed you to somebody else's red blood cells, you then form antibodies. Sometimes you can have antibodies called autoantibodies, and those diseases are, for example, autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So you form your own antibodies against your own red cells. But usually the allo antibodies called alloantibodies are formed against somebody else's red cells. And so if I've been transfused when I was a child because I had a road traffic accident, and I formed an antibody that dilutes off because you don't keep forming antibodies in your body unless you're constantly challenged. And that's a energy waste really, isn't it? So it dies off. And when I get re-transfused 20 years later for something else, then those lymphocytes which are still there in the body will get reactivated to this antigen, which I may not know that I have the problem with. And that forms the antibody. So the purpose of forming an antibody is to identify and get rid of an antigen. And the reason why people form antibodies in blood banking is because they've been previously exposed either through pregnancy or transfusion. And that's why we create rules about sample validity. But before we come to that, so for example, I get transfused blood, my ABO is properly matched, but my D-grouping is not really properly matched. But not everybody who gets a D-mismatched blood will form an anti-D antibody. So through the pregnancy data, we know that, you know, a large number of women won't actually form antibodies. So not everybody is an avid responder to antigens. Sometimes people respond very briskly, and sometimes people respond very softly. And if you don't respond very strongly to an antigen, that's determined by your HLA status. Okay. So what we've learned in blood banking is if you form one antibody, you're likely to form another. So you're a responder type. So we're usually therefore more careful. You know, pregnant women sometimes receive the anti-D. How would that be identified that the baby would be a different group? So the core problem there is to identify the mum as D negative. So if the mum lacks the D antigen, then the problem starts. If the mum is okay. D positive, there's no problem. There's no problem. And the only reason all this became important is because we were able to prevent 
these women having downstream problems by giving them a substance called anti-D. If they weren't clever enough to invent the anti-D, then they wouldn't, wouldn't be bothering at all. And that's why pregnant women who get antibodies, not because of the D, but due to, say, Kel or some of the other antigens, the problem is not to protect the mum for future pregnancies. It's more to monitor the baby to make sure that the baby is not going to suffer anemia. And in terms of the formation of antibodies, is it true to say that you know we look after a lot of sickle patients on the wards and um, transfusing sickle cell patients, there's a lot that junior nurses would want to know about. Is it true that they create or form antibodies at a higher rate than, say, other patients that have lots of transfusions, so thalassemia patients and patients that have got MDS? Yes, on the whole. So they had a, an interesting study reported from the USA where they used African-American donors for their sickle cell patients. So you'd have thought that the donor ethnicity was better matched. Despite that, they still had quite a high level of antibody formation. So there are two aspects to it. It is true that sickle cell patients do have a high level of antibody formation. One aspect of that is because the variation in an antigen so say, for example, the D antigen, there are so many variations of it. You might match African-American with an African, but the minor changes between tribes and between communities mm. are still very prevalent. And so these then mean that the D antigens changes, the variation might be quite considerable between tribes, for example. The second aspect you're saying is that sickle cell patient more likely to respond with a brisk antibody formation. So is it a recipient characteristic? That's the problem. The thalassemia group also has a problem with regard to ethnicity of blood donors, uh, but their antibody forming propensity is perhaps less, um, definitely less than the sickle. The MDS, AML type patients is probably far less because they're all immunosuppressed with chemotherapy. And there's been instances, for example, where there's been ABU-incompatible blood given by mistake, and they haven't reacted. But to go back to the sample, so we, we did the sort of analytical, but the pre-analytical is what causes a lot of problems. Because around the world, it's the, are you confident that this sample truly represents you, has been a problem. And that's not science, but that's human. And there are various things, there are mistakes in identity, all of these things. Mm -hmm. So if you're not actually manually cross-matching, if you're doing an electronic thing, you have to be completely confident of the pre-analytic because you're taking that for granted when you say you're electronically suitable for issue. Leuco depletion's been around for a while, and it, is it close to the point of not needing irradiation? So leuco depletion is pretty effective because it removes a large majority of nucleated cells. And we haven't had a short report from the hemovigilance angle of patients dying of or suffering from transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease for a long time. Mm -hmm. So putting the two together, you could say, okay, has the time come to stop bothering about irradiation? Equally, you could ask, because we have the capacity to ask that. At UCH, we have an irradiator. In fact, we are the first hospital to get an X-ray irradiator. We got rid of our gamma irradiator because it was deemed environmentally unsuitable. And we could say, okay, why not just irradiate everything and mm. be done with that problem? Yeah. So both are, both are not straightforward. And I mean, the reason we're all professionals is because nothing is straightforward. You know, that's <laughs> so we've got to admit that we are, have to earn our salaries. So, 
So the question about should you stop irradiating is the fact that we haven't seen GVHD-related mortality or morbidity has to be taken in the context of other reports coming from other countries where they've done liquid depletion. And there's been some reports, especially in Hodgkin's, you know, where there's profound immunosuppression. Mm. And so for those reasons, the practice is still likely to prevail. It's about being safe because the outcome can be so awful and it's fatal if it happens. Yeah. How aggressive should that be? So for example, should it be for every category of drugs Bendamustine and so on. There are a lot of new drugs that are being added on. For ATG, for example, some patients receiving renal transplant will get ATG. Should they get irradiated? Not everybody agrees on that. People with T-cell deficiencies when they are attending immunodeficiency clinics, should they get... So again, there's no... So lots of areas where there's no agreement. But there's going to be, I think, a few core groups where irradiation is not going to go away. The spin side of that question is, can you irradiate it? Which we do sometimes do, and I don't think it's entirely acceptable because the effect of irradiation on a unit of blood. So at the end of the day, you want the red cells to carry oxygen. You want your platelets to be sticky enough to stop the bleeding. And so you're talking about functionality. And so there's been some studies done on the functionality of packs of blood, platelets, etc., after they've been subjected to irradiation. And it would appear that there's a deterioration in the aggregability of platelets or the aging of red cells if they've been exposed to irradiation. This is small, so in the scheme of things, it's probably of no great consequence. But if we did it willy-nilly for everybody, we have to then say to our patients that, okay, or, or say to our donors, or say to somebody who we are all accountable to, that we're going slightly substandard in terms of the quality of the product where, when we don't really need to. And of course, you don't irradiated plasma because there's no cellular product in it. And in terms of CMV negative ordering of products, is that still something that we need to do? The CMV story, I think I, 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 I really worked up on that, couldn't we? <laughs> so the CMV story is that CMV is ubiquitous. People get infected. And the most common reason for getting reinfections is environmental. You pick it up. So transfusion as a cause of CMV has long been blown out as a myth. So if we were going to be worried about CMV, it's across the spectrum. And therefore, most of the world has stopped screening for CMV. Also, we leukodepleted, so the granulocytes which contain the CMV have been taken off. With platelets needing to do HLA tests, why is it that patients sort of seem to develop antibodies and destruct platelets and they don't seem to increment? Yeah, that's, that's a bit more tricky. You, if we go back to the previous statement, which I made to say that immunosuppressed patients don't often form red cell antibodies, but actually they do, as you all know, they do have alloimmunization to platelets, so they are capable of forming antibodies. So platelet and increment is a problem. A lot of the times it's related to the host factors, sepsis and so on. There's been some good studies on does it matter if you give higher dose or a lower dose or does it matter if you give it more frequently or less frequently? Mm. And none of that seems to make much of a difference. There's also been some good studies on what should be the threshold to use platelets. And so most of us feel much safer with 10, whereas we didn't used to feel so safe with 10 until these studies got published. And in fact, there's a very good study on neonates where actually transfusing higher is actually detrimental to the, to the neonates. Mm -hmm. So on the whole, less is better. Less is better because the bleeding complications are no worse. 
but also the alloimmunization rates go down. When people do have problems with increments, the usual hierarchy of steps is you make sure that they're not consuming it. If they're consuming it, then try and sort that out. So if there's an abscess that's consuming the platelets, then incise and drain that abscess if that's possible. If it is clearly not due to sepsis or consumption, usually you would do an increment. An increment can be either at one hour or 24 hours to see is this patient actually incrementing and then dropping off very quickly, because that's a different pattern. But if there's no increment, then you would test for an HLA antibody. So it would be that quick if there was an antibody, the platelet count would just not even go up at all? No. Even at, okay. Yeah. Sometimes it go, goes up at one hour, but by 24 hours it's gone back to mm. baseline. And it's hard to tease out in that situation because in a typical AML patient, so many other things are going on, yeah. isn't it? So, so if you've established HLA antibodies, we have the facility in the UK to be able to request HLA match donors who would then be invited to come and give a unit of freezed platelets. It's then incumbent upon us to do an increment after each donor because you as a donor might be more appropriate to me than you as a donor because like with blood group antigens, HLA antigens are so many that when you look for HLA antibodies, you do class one and class two, but it doesn't tell you exactly what HLA phenotype or genotype to be actually allocating to me. So that's a bit of a trial and error thing. So if you respond well to a donor, then they will re-invite the same donor for you. I think we have to stress really the importance of the increment, don't we, and documenting that to send it back. I think the two problems in our hospitals actually, one is we don't send back the increments in good time. Second is we don't stand down the policy because I might have developed actually antibodies, but either I have popped off and you know I don't need any more, uh, or I've actually finished that course, I've gone home, and my HLA antibodies will die down and I won't be HLA sensitized for a while in my next course. And I can accept and I, I can increment for a while. Okay. So oh, you have know. to stand down the HLA until you establish that you've got alumina, you know, you're not incrementing again. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's one of the things. If we know the patient, we automatically, this patient needs HLA. Oh yeah, because last HLA cycle they had HLA, you know, so yeah. this cycle they should have HLA. Usually the pattern would be if you've needed HLA matched, you would continue to need HLA matched. But there are patients where if you retest them, either the antibodies have become undetectable or they're much lower in TETA. So you can get away with non-matched. When would you be concerned about giving someone blood? They might already be a bit fluid overloaded, take more caution and perhaps only give one unit or give it much slower. The trend now is to do the one unit. When I was a registrar, we would laugh if somebody said, I want one unit. You say, you know, say, What's a the proper transfusion, you know, one, one unit. One tablet of yeah, 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 if you want one, you actually don't need any. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, you know, to be properly transfused, you need at least two or three. But anyway, that's all changed now. So it's yeah. one unit transfusion is the fashion. And it's got a lot of advantages. And overall, in patient blood management, less is deemed to be better. So 70 is a threshold rather than 90 grams per hemoglobin is threshold. So, and that's across many diseases. We've actually just done a, a pilot study across uh, UK on uh, leukemia and we're writing it up now. And so soon we'll be able to publish those results. But on the whole for ICU and all of, all of the others. But for sickle and thal that's different, it's 90, it's higher. So individual groups have their own things. But what you're talking about is the patient's fitness to receive stuff mm. rather than your 
predetermined decision as to what to give. One thing that's unique as a hematology nurse is you're kind of giving blood to patients typically when they're quite septic mm. yeah. and they might already have had some fluids earlier in the day. Yeah. And then the worry is that you might cause yeah. some respiratory issues if you give the blood. You do. So that's now more or less um, embedded in your bedside checklist, isn't it, about mm. assess the patient for TACO. So transfusion-associated circulatory overload. So if the patient is already retaining urine, has got edema, has a high JVP, all of these means that you can't tolerate more than one unit very easily. You need diuretics. So prescription of a blood, therefore, has to be accompanied by a prescription for diuretics if you do need to transfuse. Also, such patients, the transfusion could afford to be slower. It can be staggered. So you give one unit now, one unit tomorrow. You avoid night transfusions because at night oxygens drop when you're sleeping and all of that. So you avoid night transfusions. And you maintain a closer eye on the output intake and output balance. Is there anything from your perspective that you would kind of want to communicate to, <laughs> yeah. to you know, maybe the, the nurses or other healthcare professionals who might be listening? I think we're much more conscious as users of blood on the question of is the patient fit to receive blood? and so all these steps that need to go with it, on the question of what should be the thresholds of transfusion. And so we are conscious of transfusing less, transfusing fewer units at any given time, and transfusing during working hours rather than outside. Mm -hmm. But all of these might change with evidence. This is what evidence tells us is good practice now. Sure. Okay. We are also conscious of how much the pre-analytical factors of the samples we are sending off to the blood bank determine the quality of what we are getting out of the blood bank. And so that's actually quite an important thing.